Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Rob Elveld. Rob is the CEO of Ikata Inc., where he leads the charge in Ikata's continued growth and global expansion. He previously was the CEO of White Pages Inc. and has served as the CEO of other Seattle tech firms, including Optify and Viker. He started his business career in enterprise software sales at Onyx Software Corporation and has grown from there. Rob is a proud veteran as an officer in the United States Navy, where he served aboard a fast attack nuclear submarine. He has a BA in engineering sciences from Dartmouth College and an MSc and MBA from Stanford University. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Shauna. Happy to be here. Good to see you. Okay, we're going to start with some rapid fire. Okay. I think this is a good question. I was kind of proud of this question. Um, what has prepared you more for your role as a CEO, the Navy or Stanford MBA? The Navy. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> everyone I know that has served, and it makes me want to hire vets because I'm like, everyone who has served is such a discipline and rigor, um, and I want to get into that. You should um, want to hire vets. I do, and I want to talk to you more about it. Okay. I, I really do. It's a huge goal of ours. Um, okay. What was your favorite thing to eat while you were on the submarine? <laughs> I used to I used to bring on cans of tuna fish and after three weeks at, after three days at sea everything fresh is gone there's no fresh fruit fresh vegetables or anything and you get sick of some of the food there so I would have cans of tuna fish in my locker I'd open a can of tuna fish and eat it no just just a can of tuna fish and water no mayonnaise or lemon or anything. And, and that was, you know, it was kind of, it was light, didn't have a lot it's of fat. It's very healthy. I have yeah, to say super so. healthy, but I'm sure your, your uh, friends on the submarine with you weren't so psyched. That's like bringing it out on, it does have a smell with it. So you have to get rid of it after that. I know. But. I sometimes, I, sometimes I bring a hard boiled egg on the airplane. I'm like, this might not be the right move for the other passengers. <laughs> um, okay. So are you beach or mountains? I'm a water guy, so a little bit less laying on the beach. But if you had to say, would you rather live near the water or would you rather live near mountains? I grew up in Michigan, near Lake Michigan, and mm. so a big body of water. And now I live out here in Seattle and really like the access to the water all around. I love the mountains out here, too. It's a great combination, Seattle. But Seattle's the best like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you're a big traveler. International travel is a big passion of yours. So mm -hmm. what's your favorite city you've ever visited? Wow, that is a good question. Um, I really like London, just tons of museums. I, I really like the pubs. I like the dark wood pubs and to facilitate talking to people as opposed to blinking lights and and so forth. Um, I uh, spent a, a summer working in Bangkok, Thailand on the other side of the world and really enjoyed the Thai culture and 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 uh, uh, food and, and, and learning about Southeast Asia. Right, you um, ka. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, those would be a couple that would be high on the list. Yeah. And okay, so if there was a book that was written about your life, 
what would it be called? Well, I think a lot of people often enjoy the journey. I so. love that. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Um, okay, final question. If you yeah. could have any superpower, which one would you choose? <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time thinking about superpowers. Um, boy, reading people's minds. Okay, so you grew up in Michigan. Yep. I, yeah, is that how you identify yourself? Yep. Like, is that a big part of your identity? Still today. I mean, I've lived in Seattle for over 20 years now, but I still think of myself a lot as a Midwesterner. And I I have a Michigan baseball cap that I wear a lot, even though I didn't go to school there. I'm a big Michigan fan. Fantastic school. So what were you into as a kid? Like, what fueled you back then? Uh, well, uh, I, it, for a sport, I played football. I played, a, I was a okay football player on a really good program. Uh, my football coach is probably the second most important influence, uh, male influence in my life. besides my dad, um, I spent a lot of time in the summers, uh, in and around Lake Michigan. So I swam water skied stuff like that. Um, and just spent time in the open water. And, um, you know, I skied in the winter. Yeah. It was cold. It wasn't nearly as good as skiing as here, frankly. Yeah. But, what, le uh, what, what lessons did you learn, Rob, from your, you talked about your football coach. Like that's a big, yeah. that's a big job to be the second top two kind of biggest influence. Yeah. Uh, his name was George Barcheski. Uh, everyone called him Bar. Um, he uh, was very colorful, um, a different football coach than probably many these days. Um, uh he taught us to work really hard he was the winningest football coach in the state of michigan when i played for him and um you know you learn to work really hard um uh, you learned that um as, as hard as you had to practice and be focused you also had to perform at game time um you learned to rely on the person on your right and left um you know one of the things i really like about football is you, you really have to trust your team there's no one person that can win a football game um, and, um, and we, we really, we were in a program where we were expected to win. And so you mm -hmm. learn to deal with pressure and, yeah. you know, you don't deal with it perfectly all the time, but you, you learn to deal with pressure. And, uh, that was, that was helpful. Yeah. And so, um, were you a good student? I'm assuming so. Cause you're, I was pretty you're good student. Dartmouth. I worked, I worked hard. I don't, you know, uh, I was pretty self-motivated to study hard. Yeah, and um, who motivated that? Was that kind of a value in your home? Like, was yes, but both, both, both my parents, my, my dad was a lawyer. My mom had a master's in social work. They were both uh, academically focused. Um, and I always, I always, uh, you know, worked hard at school, even though I already get good grades. Like, even though it was, it was not hard for me, I always worked a little harder than, yeah. you know. That's great. And you've got, you've got three kids, right? I've got three kids, uh, 15, 17, and 19. Oh my goodness. Any boys? Two boys, two, two older boys. boys and a younger daughter. It's great nice. to experience, you know, ha uh, raising both uh, boys and girls. Yeah. Uh, and are they and I football keep, players? They keep us on our toes. Mm -hmm. You know, the middle one is a football player. Um, and uh, I didn't push them to be football players. I just wanted each of them to have a team sport experience. I thought mm -hmm. that was much more important than playing the sport I liked. And he came to football relatively late. He started playing as a sophomore, but he really enjoys it. So it, it makes me happy. But my older son really loved Ultimate Frisbee and was probably going to play that in college. 
and um and my daughter um really likes lacrosse she also oh, swims yeah. competitively so we're, you know, we're but, a big uh, lacrosse family i love that that's awesome yeah it's a great sport i really i've yeah. learned a lot just watching her and her coaches and so forth so yeah well, my son plays lacrosse and um was playing football and i kind of became the wimpy mom who made him quit football and he's <laughs> he's not thrilled so i'm always asking smarter people than i am like so football and it sounds like you're on board it's it's gotten so crazy these days yeah yeah um I don't know. It's one of those things where I I played. There's there's always some risk to anything you do. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So yeah. you've got a. Um, I read that you have a high school teacher who inspired you to pursue engineering because he was coding at the time. I had I had a high school teacher who was uh, I had I had I was lucky to have a couple of really good high school teachers, but one of them was uh, Mr. Kemp. He was a um, he was a um, yeah, we, we didn't really call it computer science at the time, but he was he was the teach, teacher that taught me how to code. And so when I went off to college, I took a couple of, of coding classes, but I really kind of got burned out on software, honestly. But my the first person I met in college, the first uh, RA was an engineering major. And I spent a night with them and because uh, I didn't have a room yet. And he's like, you should think about being an engines major at Dartmouth. It was called an en engines. And, uh, you know, you think about being, that was the short for it. You should be an oh, engines like major. Engines. So I just signed up for a bunch of prereqs, uh, math and physics prereqs. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm two years into this thing, buried in thermodynamics classes or whatever. And so it, it wasn't like there was a huge <laughs> thought process around it. It just sort of yeah. happened. Yeah, I actually love the part of that part of the podcast and just general uh, conversations I have with people the most when like their life is determined by or dictated by kind of a haphazard way of kind of going into something like, I don't know, my friend did it. So I showed up one day and next thing you know, like, and then it's great. It's like, it's good for our kids to hear this too, because they're kind of over-programmed, overthinking and over-orchestrated. So it's great. So you chose Dartmouth. Was that... Um, like who was guiding you through this whole process? Such a great I, school. My dad was an alum and I'd always wanted to go there and I didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't have a plan B. I probably, my plan B was probably to apply to University of Michigan. Um, I never, I had never visited any colleges. None of the stuff that you do a lot of today. Um, I just always, I used to watch the football scores come in uh, with my dad and I always kind of wanted to go there and I was lucky yeah. enough to apply and get in. Yeah, that's awesome. And so have you stayed in touch with some of your college friends? I know we talked about Brent oh, yeah. Fry. Yeah. Those, are those, is that your crew? Is that your kind of like core kind of in your wedding type of people? You know, I've got a core group of uh, 10, 12 college friends. I do a pretty good job of keeping in touch with. I've, I'm really, I feel uh, lucky and blessed. I've got, you know, about that same number of high school friends. And I've got a couple friends from the Navy. And, um, and, and I've got a couple friends from grad school too. So uh, you know, you read a lot. I'm now <laughs> scarily over 50. I'm not going to tell you how far over 50. I, I already am, but, know because um, I did the oh. research. <laughs> anyway, <And> was... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you read all these things about, you know, men in their, you know, age 50 or whatever, you know, midlife and how hard it is to make friends for men specifically. And mm -hmm. uh, I just, I've been really lucky to have a good core group of friends from a, a couple different phases of my life. Yeah. And so how have those um, friendships coming out of such a great school and then obviously Stanford MBA impacted, you know, your life and also your career? 
Like, I guess the value of a network and of relationships. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, you mentioned Brent. I mean, I'm in Seattle because Brent Fry, he, he recruited me to a startup. He was running, it wasn't a startup anymore by the time I won. It was about 120 people. When I, when I started working for Onyx, I, I, I talked my way. I, he recruited me to a marketing role um, for a summer as an internship. And then I sort of realized at the time that the marketing team didn't really know what was going on. And the, I was always asking the salespeople what was going on. So I figured the salespeople were the only ones that were touching the customers and really knew what was going on. So I tucked myself into an entry-level sales position for Onyx down in the Bay Area. And I was probably the lowest paid person graduating from my business school class. Honestly, I'm not kidding. Uh, I was an entry-level sales position. The fact that I had a graduate degree didn't matter at all. The fact that I was an engineer didn't matter at all. All, all that mattered is could I make my number selling or not. And so, um, and things went you know, I had a couple of deals go my way the first quarter and kind of grew from there and ended up yeah. having doing okay as a salesperson, enterprise that, salesperson. That's awesome. That's a tough job, I gotta say. And so when you say you were the lowest paid, wasn't there a recruiting on campus that you were looking into? Like how come you didn't pursue something um, you know, you right know, away? I, uh, that's a good question. Um, I I had I had seen one of the cool things about business school is we had a ton of speakers come. Mm. And um, a number of the executives and CEOs that came and talked um, started in sales. And they usually either started in sales or they started in product or engineering. Um, and I felt like there were kind of three areas to get some core knowledge. One would be sales. Another one would be finance. Um, or, or the third would be sort of engineering, coding, that sort of thing. And I was kind of, you know, I was all oh, 30 coming out of business school or something like that. I was kind of past um, mm, the fact oh, of, of starting to be a coder at that point. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've been in the Navy and I managed a lot of people and, and, and um, you know, made life and death decisions on a day-to-day -day basis for a while. And, yeah. um, and, and then, and, and finance was something where I just, I, I was more interested in the market and the customers. And so, yeah. But I, I knew that sales was one of those things that you couldn't sort of fake it. You either had to sort of roll up your sleeves and be a professional salesperson yeah. for a while or not. And you kind of got to pay your dues in sales. Yeah. And it's measurable. It's like either you're successful that or you're true. not. Like the, the, <laughs> the, the numbers don't lie for sure. Very so true. who recruited you into the Navy? What an interesting decision. Like, how did that come to be? Was your dad in the Navy? My parents were not in the Navy uh, or the military. Um, my dad was not. Uh, he, I, he, he was, he was a, a, a JAG officer, a legal officer for an Air Force Reserve, just because back then there was a draft and everyone had to do something. So, but um, uh, I, it's, I, uh, I, I spent um, a quarter in a language study abroad in Germany in college. And I traveled with some friends of mine uh, before that. And one of the places I went was the Normandy beaches. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen Saving Private Ryan, but there's a beginning scene where the, the, the kind of the, one of the main characters is walking along, you know, 30 odd, 40 years later um, at, at the American military cemetery there. And I literally, when I saw that movie it came out in 1995, I'd done that walk seven or eight years before 1987. And I knew exactly where it was. And I, you, you sort of stood there and you look out on this beach, it's three quarters of a mile of beach flat on this big bluff, it's a hundred feet up. And you 
stand there and say, gosh, you know, the only way to take this beach is to send so many people running up that you, the Germans couldn't shoot them all. Literally, it's a shooting gallery. And so I, I remember my hands were shaking and I just decided that I should do something in my generation to serve my time, give something back for all the people that did that. So wow. um, very self-motivated. And it took me like kind of a year to sort of decide after I stood there, um, maybe, maybe half a year to a year, I kind of looked around for a program and then I applied to the Navy. And was that, I mean, was that scary? Like, especially for, did you have, it sounds like you didn't have family or friends who served before you. And so was that something you went into kind of um, scared? I guess you wrestle, I you wrestle it with it a little bit, you know, you, you take an oath to protect and defend the constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And what you are really deciding is what what's worth dying for. Right. right? And, and so you, you wrestle with your own mortality at age 20, taking that oath. So um, at least I did. And, uh, um, and so it, it, I didn't do it overnight and I didn't do it. Um, I didn't do it on a whim, but, mm -hmm. um, but I never had any regrets either. Um, yeah. And I was always very proud to serve. And it was hard. It be, was yeah. hard. <laughs> so what was, what was the scariest thing that you experienced? <laughs> uh, well, um, aboard a submarine, um, you know, uh, there are two things that are, are very scary. One's a fire and the other's flooding. And um, at some level, I experienced both of those. But, uh, well, I did experience both of them, but flooding was, was, was a little bit less so. But there was a, um, there was a it, it's, it's a little bit of a hard to describe, but when you're submerged, there's um, a bunch of air regeneration systems actually that were developed by NASA. And so, cause you're sort of fine tuning how much oxygen and CO2 is in the air cause you're breathing it, it's gotta be replenished and so forth. And there's a lot of fans blowing to, to move the air around. And so you can, you can smell a change in the air very quickly. You can smell smoke very quickly. And um, I was, uh, it was about midnight and I was in a t-shirt and shorts and I had just gotten finished. It was in the engine room. I had just gotten finished doing a workout. We used to do pull-ups near the main engines and it was always hot back there and you do push-ups on the deck plates. And, and there was a guy on watch and I was about 20 feet from him. He was an, another officer like I was and I was about to go to bed. And I looked at him and our eyes met. We smelled smoke at the same time and I ran aft. He, he was on watch. So he went in, uh, called away a fire alarm. There's about a hundred feet I ran. It was one of those things where you'd been on so long, I knew where to duck. You know, I covered that ground so fast, dropped down to lower level, ran forward. I ran into him coming forward and I knocked him over because we were both coming through the same hatch. I got in this room, I said, it's here. It's, 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 it's engine room lower level. There was smoke everywhere. We had people pouring down. We were all taught to attack a fire. And there was smoke everywhere and you couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And so I immediately, this Mr. Elvell and man in charge and entry from lower level. And I was, I had machinist mates that used to report to me and I was telling them, I thought that there was some oil spray in somewhere that was smoking. We didn't want it to fire if oil lights. It's really hard to get out. And so I had all sorts of people around me. And then um, basically uh, this this big lube oil pump that was sort of like bigger than I am shot fight a, a big fireball out. And oh um, this, my God. 
and it was short-circuiting, and this guy named Petty Officer Miller, who was an electrician's mate, big guy, bigger than me, probably 220 pounds, elbowed me out of the way and sprayed that thing down with a CO2 extinguisher. And anyway, we, you know, we got it out and um, there was wow. smoke everywhere. And, you know, um, so yeah, you have a lot of paperwork to do and, and, and so forth. And four hours later, we were finishing up the paperwork. Everybody in the boat was awake, you know, it's like four in the morning and, you know, the captain had interviewed both of us and stuff like that. <laughs> so uh, Miller comes up and he goes, Hey, Mr. E, hold out your hand. They would just call me Mr. E. Hold out your hand. So I held out my hand and my hands four hours later, my hand shaking. He held out his hand, his hand was shaking. <laughs> well, how could it not be? I'm, I'm shaking yeah. just listening to this story. <laughs> Is there, I guess, meditation or some sort of way to calm your energy? Because I get claustrophobic thinking about it. <laughs> I guess yeah, the, you can't really the, have that. You don't really have that. You're sort of trained to deal with, you know, you're, 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 there's a lot of expectations. There's, you know, a couple of years of training before you get on your boat. Um, certainly there were a few people that ultimately, you know, sort of exited the boat, put up their hands said, I can't take it. I, I'm leaving. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it was all volunteer on purpose. You didn't want someone down there who didn't want to be. So. so what was the longest period of time that you were on the submarine without coming up? Six weeks and, oh you know, gosh. a long time to be submerged, but I'll tell you today, you know, I've, I've actually got a friend from Dartmouth who, uh, is the CFO of a company that operates um, li uh, liquefied natural gas ships around the world. And they've got all sorts of crews that literally can't come ashore right now. So they've got crews oh, yeah, that have been I've on seen, their read about ships for six months or a year not being able to come to shore because all these countries won't let them. They don't want anybody um, spreading COVID. It's terrible. Uh, yeah, so so my six terrible. weeks isn't that long in the scheme of things right now. Well, it, it's all hindsight's 2020, of course. So you, <laughs> so you did this whole crazy experience in the Navy. And when you um, ended that, is that when you went and got your MBA at Stanford? Yeah, I, 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 I applied to a dual masters and, and business uh, masters yeah. course. Yeah. Was, was that kind of one of those things that you felt you needed in order to have success in the in the business world? It was a good transition time, number one. Uh, number two is I, I sort of had wanted to go to graduate school and I, you know, the Navy's very focused uh, mm -hmm. and um, it was it was nice to have kind of, to be able to go back to an epic academic experience. I don't think I would have appreciated it very much coming right out of college. Um, um, and, yeah. you know, I had some friends that like went straight into law school or something. They didn't really want to be in law school. They didn't really think about it. It's just like they were kind of programmed to keep doing something. And so I, 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 I always counsel to take a year or a couple of years before you go back to grad school, just because you'll mm -hmm. appreciate it more and you'll know a little bit more what you want to do and that sort of yeah. thing. I've heard that wisdom dropped by several people that have said, just take a little break, make sure that that's what you want to do. What's your take on like an MBA versus no MBA? I think real world experience is far more important to be super clear. And, yeah. you know, we spend a lot of time training our people and I, I give them a lot of the wisdom I've got from a little bit of MBA and a lot of real world experience. Right. Yeah. Um, um, and so I think, uh, you know, what, what, what any, what any school experience does is it, it gives you a, a, a little bit of a broader range of information, but it doesn't, it doesn't, um, take it down to something tangible very well, right? And so what's tangible is when you're working. And yeah. um, what was helpful for me uh, for, for an MBA is coming out of the Navy, you know, I had sort of no exposure to business at all. And so 
it was more the whole experience of meeting people and seeing speakers and taking classes mm. um, as opposed to any one thing um, and, 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 and just allow me a little bit of time to think about where to, where to, where to, you know, start somewhere. Yeah. So, so what launched your career? Like you said that you didn't have a lot of exposure and then you launched this crazy, crazy, successful, awesome. I'm sure you've had some (laughs) peaks and valleys, but you know, career and career in tech. Well, um, I thought I was going to go back to Michigan and sort of, I, I, applied to this dual master's program that was was engineering and business um and it was specifically designed around manufacturing sort of you know um um, creating many building manufacturing leaders um to keep manufacturing in in the in the u.s and and um i just i got to the west coast um i actually met my wife on the west coast i'm not sure she was thrilled to go back to michigan i really didn't ask her i mean (laughs) but um met my wife at graduate school um, and um, she was in my class. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're at Stanford. Um, this was the late nineties tech was all around us. And, and then Brent um, and, and I, I took one summer and did an internship in Thailand just to check out Southeast Asia and travel a little bit. And then I had this second summer cause I was doing two masters and Brent asked me to, you know, recruited me up to, to, to do a marketing internship. And then I ended up staying for a couple of years and, and learning about tech and specifically B2B software. I mean, yeah. if you really want to be specific about it, I'm not a consumer guy, really. I'm a, I'm a B2B person, right. business to business. And, and, um, so I kind of started there with sales and learned a lot about how to work with customers and, and, um, you know, um, you know, what, what, what selling is about, not use car selling, but selling and, mm-hmm. um, guiding people on decisions. You don't, you can't make the decision for them, but you can influence them and, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so, um, so all of these experiences, I mean, I guess out of all of them within your career, where did you learn the most as far as preparing you for your role at white pages and then ultimately Akata? Uh, I, so after Onyx, I wrote a business plan and started a company. I co-founded a company. I recruited a, um, executive out of Boeing as a co-founder. Um, he, I got introduced to him through a Navy buddy of mine who worked for him. And that was how I got to Seattle. I wrote this business plan and it was, it was focused on the heavy manufacturing supply chain, which I'd studied some of at Stanford. And, um, it was, it was really software as a service before it's time. I was a big believer in software as a service because I'd sold enterprise software. And there were just some real disincentives with the customer base uh, with enterprise software. I could talk about if you want, but I was a big believer in software as a service. It was much more transparent. You had to earn your way every month with the customer. Um, and um, I, I, I co-founded this company. We licensed some technology out of Boeing. It wasn't really... The, the technology wasn't worth very much, but it was worth not having Boeing trying to sue us because we recruited <laughs> some people out of there. Right. And, um, and I ran it for six years and uh, it was incredibly hard. It was, uh, uh, I founded that company after the tech bubble burst, the tech bubble burst in like March, 2000, the first 
money I raised for the company was, was sort of angel investors and 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 friends and 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 and, and family. And that was in you know mid two thousand. The first venture round I raised was in two thousand and one. The venture capital industry had never gone through a downturn that point really uh the modern venture capital industry right. and they, they were in a bunker i can tell you no one knew what to do and the hardest thing I ever do, did was raise a series a round in 2001 um six million dollar sure. round um and i ran it for six years and um you know we sold a boeing and lockheed and ge aircraft engines i mean these are extraordinarily hard customers to deal with um and uh, we were a little 30 person company and Everything we did, we were sailing upwind against a freaking gale force wind. I mean, everything we did was a push. Um, and ultimately it didn't work. It failed. And it wasn't like it wasn't like, oh, you know, we sold it and you know, it wasn't great, but we sold it. Like, a lot of people say, well, we sold this or we got this, or you know, a lot of people say, like, oh, we had fun, we're having fun, we're having fun. It was not fun, it was a freaking grind every day. And uh, people would ask me, what's like being a CEO? And, you know, I was in my mid thirties at the time. I said, you know what a CEO is taking bad news every day and not showing how bad it hurts. That's what being a CEO is about because you just can't panic. And I learned in the Navy, never panic, never, ever, ever panic. You got to keep thinking about what, what you're going to do. And so, um, but, but anyway, I learned a ton and like of the stuff that I'm dealing with today at Akata. Most of the lessons, not all of them, but most of the hard lessons I learned in six years trying to sort of carry that business Vicor on my shoulders. And some of the things I learned is I shouldn't try and carry it all on my shoulders, right? I need to, I need to rely on a team, but also hold a team accountable. Mm -hmm. um, and is so, that, I mean, not to be like deep shrinky, but I'm just curious, is that like trust issues or de problems delegating or um like control issues like we all have our I'm actually like love to delegate but I know that I do talk to a lot of people who have trouble letting go they want to touch everything you know leadership was always something that that was sort of I I felt was important and I put a lot of time and effort into um I, I had done all the research on this business. I had led the first customer efforts. You know, I, I actually recruited someone out of Boeing, but he was barred from selling to Boeing for a year. I mean, you can imagine why, you know, they, they, they had a rule that once you'd left, you, had a, you couldn't literally enter the property for a year. So, you know, the first customer was Boeing. Who sold it? Me. It was like 34 years old, had no experience in aerospace, but I had to sell that deal. Um, and um, uh, Lockheed was our second customer who sold Lockheed, me. So I, I like, you know, I... I started to know these accounts better than anybody else. Yeah, and, that makes um, sense. And, and the, the, the challenge was, well, I, to cut to the chase, I, I, one of the things that's important, when, especially when you're small, but anytime is you, you need one or more thought partners and you can call them business partners, but I mean, you should really think of them as thought partners more than anything else. And, you know, it, 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 uh, Vicor, I had at various times in that company's evolution, three different ones. But the last two years, I had my thought partner was our chief operating officer, Carla Corcoran. And um, she's great. She's been a CEO here in town, uh, super uh, person, and now leads a couple of Vistage CEO groups and is a CEO coach and a good friend of mine. But um, at the time, you know, she said to me, Rob, 
you know, every time someone comes to you with something, you're super quick. I, I'm not, I'm not like you, Rob. I can't process things really quickly. I got to like sort of sleep on them for a night, but you're super fast. So if someone comes out of a meeting, a customer meeting or something, sends an update or talks on the phone, you've got an idea what to do all the time. And the problem with you having an idea and processing really quickly is it doesn't give them time to think about what to do. And so what I do is I just ask them, you know, hey, what do you think we should do? Because then, you know, uh, <laughs> you train them. You're to, getting all the to, best to, thinking. Yeah, exactly. You train them to bring you, you know, solutions, not problems. And I like yeah. sat there, I like, I sat there like, the, I replayed that in my mind, like, for a week, because I was like, every, every problem I've had for the past four years is in partly self-induced because, you know, whenever there was a problem it was kind of like, I'll, I'll shoulder it. I'll take it. Yeah, and in reality, what I should have been doing is saying, Hey, what would you do? And let, why don't you take it? And so yeah. we have a very specific training at Akata that I tell all the new line managers, the first question you should be asking everybody that reports to you when they bring you something is, what do you think we should do? Because yeah. for two reasons, one is it, it trains them all that they need to bring you solutions, not problems, because anybody can point out a problem. That's, that's uh, not, 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 not terribly helpful, right? Um, finding a solution to a problem, that's super helpful. Yeah. Um, but secondly, um, you know, usually what we should do on any given thing is a little bit gray. It's not like this is for sure the right way to turn. It's we could go this way. We could go this way. And if so, if someone comes to you and says, Hey, Rob, I think we should go this way. Unless I've like seen that movie and I know it ends in just blood and gore and tears, you know, um, uh, we should definitely just let them do that. Even though I might think it might be a better idea to go here. Yeah. Why? Because most of what makes the decision of which way to go successful is how committed the implementation is. And that person who's got to go execute it, if it's their idea, they are going to be be, so much more motivated to make it work. And they're going to put so much more emphasis into it. And by the way, it's great which way would have worked anyway. So let them do that. It empowers them and it keeps them more engaged. Um, And even if it doesn't work, guess what? They learned. Because totally. heaven knows every every learning I have is from a mistake I made. And uh, yeah. believe me, I've made a longer list than most people. <laughs> they they you do know? say you learn the most from your mistakes. Yeah. yeah. So my, my question to you is, um, looks like you took the job as VP of sales at White Pages when you had been on this like CEO, C-suite, almost all of your career. How did you know that, how did your ego allow you to say, you know, no problem. I'm asking from a recruiter's perspective yeah. because sometimes- candidates come in and they're very limited by title well number one i'd already made that mistake <laughs> so after i shut vicor down i was kind of like you know i i i, I had felt like i'd heard, learned a lot of hard lessons and i and i sort of was just in a in a bad market i picked a bad market and i and i really felt like i sh- you know wanted to be ceo again and i basically should have just backed off that ego and I would have made a better choice, but I didn't. And so as CEO again, but it was anyway, um, if I had just been more flexible, I probably would have ended up with a better experience somewhere else, honestly, that second one after Vicor. But, you know, by the time um, I was recruited, there was a recruiting agency of, uh, you know, um, 
Spencer Stewart re retained search and, and they approached me and, and I met Alex Elgard, who was at the oh, time yeah. CEO of White Pages, now chairman of White Pages and Akata. So my boss still, but uh, at the yeah. time he was CEO of White Pages and he was starting this um, little business, you know, well, it was, it was there, but it was a little tiny 10 person business unit called White Pages Pro. And he wanted a VP of sales. And I came in and I talked to him. And I talked to a lot of other people and they, they, they tried to hire this role once or twice before and it hadn't worked out. So like I went through an immense number of interview loops, five or six. I talked to, I don't know, 30 people. And um, I, I had, a, you know, I got to know Alex. It was over a period of time. I was, um, I was kind of exiting a different kind of selling some assets of a different company I'd been parachuted into. We tried to turn it around, just didn't really quite work. And I was doing some consulting. I wasn't in a big rush to find something new. And um, um, I got to know Alex and he really felt like he's an entrepreneur's entrepreneur and he's started three businesses. He's like Brent, you know, there's, there's relatively few in Seattle that have mm -hmm. started more than one business. Um, so Alex is the CEO of Haya. He started white pages. Um, now uh, Lee McMillan runs white pages who, you know, uh, great CEO. And, and I run uh, Kata, which was spun out of white pages. And yeah. so, um, uh, but uh, Alex Elgar is an entrepreneur's entrepreneur, and he really felt like, hey, we got all these leads. If we just had a VP of sales, it would sort of sort itself out. Kind of like the and, CEO of the business went through the sales perspective. Yeah, and I, and I and I said to Alex, I said, you know, if you really want this business unit to grow, you're going to need a general manager. It's it's more than just closing deals. I can just tell you, it's 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 a it's a bigger effort than that from a go to market standpoint. But so we we basically kind of came to an agreement that. I would be, uh, it wasn't my sort of career objective to go be a VP of sales because I could do that at bigger companies than this one, right? Um, if, I, if that was, so we just kind of had a handshake that was like, look, I'll be your VP of sales for a year and I'll effectively do the general manager role of this business unit on the side. And if in a year's time, you don't feel like this, this uh, business unit needs a GM, or I'm not it. Either one of those, it's fine. No harm, no foul. But I'll leave. And um, but if if you if you do want me to stay, you know, I'm going to be a you know, I think it's going to warrant being a GM here. So that was the agreement we had, and and we you know, I executed the VP of Sales role, and he executed on the agreement we had given my performance. And so yeah, it worked out that's fine. That's awesome. That's great. So how do how come they needed to spin out Ikata instead of just keeping it like White Pages Pro, you know, like a product yeah. within? Well, it was a progression of things. In 2016, um, we spun out this business unit. It's now Haya, basically because Samsung came and Haya has a real focus on mobile phone numbers. And it's, uh, I won't go into that, but, but Alex was, moving to London with his family for a couple of years, he was, he wanted to be the CEO of Haya. And so he asked me to be the CEO of white pages, which after we spun out Haya was white pages, the consumer business, the traditional whitepages.com that he had founded in 1997 and white pages pro the B2B business, the API focused business. Mm -hmm. And so, and I was the GM of, of, of white pages pro. So at the time um, in, in, in mid 2016, we spun out Haya and um, I uh, assumed the position of uh, a CEO of White Pages and ran those two business units. And over six months or something, I, I, I recruited in Lee McMillan initially as the VP of marketing for White Pages uh, consumer business and then promoted her to GM. And then in 2000 and 
late 2018, early 2019, White Pages Pro was global. We were just opening an office in Amsterdam. We had a bunch of global customers. It was more of a global focused business. And it was, it was growing at a 50% rate. It was a pretty aggressive growth business. And White Pages Consumer was growing sort of mid-teens. Um, it was super profitable. It was more US focused. And sort of the strategies were, were, were uh, um, uh, not as aligned as they were yeah. previously. And so yeah. it was just an agreement at the board level that we should separate those two businesses. And Lee would be the CEO of White Pages and I would be the CEO of Akata. So that's what we did. That's great. And so for our listeners who don't know Ikata, what does Ikata do? Ikata uh, provides identity verification data to um, uh, e-commerce merchants and payment providers and financial services companies to basically identify, you know, is this Rob Elleveld online on my website, either trying to make a transaction or applying for a new a loan or a new bank account or something? Mm-hmm. Or is this someone with some of Rob Elavel's information? Maybe they purchased my credit card on the dark web with my address and my name associated with it, but they don't have my mobile phone number or they don't have my email address. So they're, they've got some pieces of my identity, but not all of them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, do, does this look like a real, a real person doing a legit transaction? Or is this someone who's got some bad intent or is a fraudster that's impersonating Rob Elevel? Yeah. So that's what all of our customers are trying to decide. And we provide data around names, addresses, phone numbers, emails, um, and IP addresses um, that help paint a picture of whether this looks like enough data that makes sense together that's Rob Elleveld. There's other things out there that we don't do. We don't have social security numbers or things associated with credit risk like the credit bureaus do. And we we don't have device IDs like, you know, something that's on your browser on your mobile phone that says you've used this before, things like that. Yeah. So what is the business model as far as how you make money and how and how has that, uh, I guess, how has your business been impacted through COVID? Well, we, we, we license our data products, our data products, about 80% of our revenues, API driven application programming interface. So if someone's directly connecting to pull data on a transaction by transaction basis, 20%, we also have a web portal. So 20% of our customers are using some of our data through a web portal for what's called manual review, where I'm actually looking at one particular transaction, trying to decide for some reason, is this fraudulent or good? Um, and, but most of our data is used in, in rules basis, rules platforms, or in machine learning models that basically come up with a decision on whether this is good or bad. And um, uh, we, we charge on a per query basis. So every time someone pings our API, we charge anywhere from you know, 20 cents a query on down, um, depending on volume and, and, and commitment. Um, we do a lot of data testing with, with product managers, our customers, uh, at the, at the, at the business contact level are usually product managers or data scientists, mm-hmm. um, around the world. So we, we work with, you know, Amazon and Apple and, 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 and big e-commerce companies, Walmart, yeah. we, we work with, you know, um, Stripe and, and, uh, Adyen and, and, um, big, uh, um, Impressive. companies. And so, you know, around the world. Yeah. And so how has this past year been during the pandemic? Well, uh, we feel really lucky. Uh, um, we a part of our business was impacted because we also serve the travel industry. So you know, we Expedia, Booking.com, a number of airlines are 
customer data that was way down. It's coming back now. But um, we have e-commerce really took off, as you know, more and more people are in their homes instead of going retail shopping at the mall, they're doing things online. So um, our, our top line revenue, we were about 10% behind plan uh, last year. We had a 50% growth target, wasn't quite 50%, but you know, in the pandemic, the growth we had was, I feel really good about, but we also um, pulled back a little bit on our hiring because we were unsure how our customer base would do. Um, I'd managed more tenuous companies through both the 2001 downturn, as I mentioned, and also 2008. And so we were conservative on our hiring. And so we were super profitable last year. Like it's the only time in my entire career where we were too profitable and my board was pushing me to invest more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's do, always some, something. do something. Yeah, that's always a, something. So yeah, anyway, we're, we're hiring so aggressively. We feel really good. We, we opened an office in Singapore last year. Yeah. We've got, you know, 200 people, 70 of them are in either Budapest, Amsterdam or, or Singapore. So we're managing big distributed global business. Um, yeah. And it's, it's fun. Yeah, I'm, I know. It's incredible. And so tell me, you said you're growing. Tell me about why Ikata, if somebody is listening and potentially wants to apply for a job. Well, um, we have a couple of, we have seven operating imperatives on our website. And we, we wrote those when we separated from white pages, but the number of them were kind of how we operated before, which is why we call them operating imperatives. Um, we, we did a look at values around different companies. And if you did a Venn diagram mix of all of the values of tech companies in the area or in San Francisco, like 70% of them are the same five things. So we didn't want to do that. We did something separate, different. So we have seven operating imperatives. I'll call out a couple of them. One is we build enduring customer relationships. And so we touch the customer. It's very unique for us to be shut in our houses, but we travel. Our product managers go out and meet customers. Our product marketers go out and meet customers. Um, we, 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 we travel to see customers. Um, we travel around our various offices around the world to, to be uh, work together in cross-functional teams. So we're very focused on um, being out there in the market and touching the market. And that's, uh, if, if you've been in B2B for a while, there's a lot of companies where no one ever touches a customer and they're just sort of in this bureaucracy and they, you know, we, we're not that. Um, so that's, that's one thing we, we really center around the market and the customers. Um, I, I talked about this idea of what do you think we should do? That's embedded in our operating imperatives in, in two things. One of our operating imperatives is bring a point of view. So we ask everybody like, Hey, if, if you've got an idea, bring it, you know, bring a point of view. Don't just sit there and be passive. Um, and that's really encouraged our company. And then the other one is, is, is the other operating imperative is called push accountability to the edge. Um, the edge is very, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a software term, okay, edge servers and so forth. But people ask me where the edge is. And I say, well, you know, the edge is a lot of places, but there's one place the edge is not. It's not my desk, okay? It's a way far away from my desk because I don't have enough context to make the decisions. We want people making decisions out there when they're in a customer meeting. We want, we want people in power. We want product managers to make a decision real time in a standup on a Tuesday morning with, with four software engineers um, on the daily standups. So we really focus on empowering people to, 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 to make decisions at the edge. And we understand they're going to make mistakes. So we try and create what I call operating envelopes so that a mistake isn't catastrophic in one way or another. Mm. Um, so we don't set them up for failure by just saying, hey, go do it. You know, um, but but we 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 really do uh, focus on 
um, um, engaging people and empowering people uh, that way. And we 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 focus on um, trust and transparency. That's another that's another yeah. another operating imperative. So. Yeah, I love those. And so as you're scaling this year and we're in a global pandemic, are you guys still 100% remote? And if so, how has that, um, I guess, impacted your recruiting strategy? <sighs> We've added 30% of our workforce <laughs> since the pandemic started, and I worry about it every day. Yeah. Every day. Because... Well, that's what makes you a great leader, Rob. It's good that you're worrying about this. People, CEOs who are not worried about their culture, especially if you're the type who's like, you know, you want them to know you, know your people. It's hard. It's hard to transfer that culture uh, on, a, on a virtual basis um, mm -hmm. when you can't touch people and meet people. I was, I was talking to my, I've got a great chief of staff. We have an 18 month chief of staff rotation that works for me. And we pick out people that are high performers. And then we, put them back in the company, the Google goal. And, and so I've got a great chief of staff. Her name's uh, Stacy Gillanese. And um, I was talking to her about it today. And I was saying like, you know, um, every experience I have, if you let the culture just sort of organically involve, it goes a bad way somehow. Uh, you've got to be very intentional about the culture and you still can't control everything. Right. But, but you can be intentional about it. And, mm -hmm. um, and so we're trying to be intentional about the culture, um, even during the pandemic. Um, I'm sure we will be making mistakes along the way and already have made some, but um, we, we, are, we are going to go back to the office um, and the end state is still to operate like we did before the pandemic at the end state. Whether that mm -hmm. end state is, I don't quite know. It's probably sometime Q4 or something. Yeah. In between yeah. now and then, it's a very flabby muscle going back to the office. So we're going to have to develop that muscle over time and, you know, go in once or twice a week and have reasons to go in. I had a friend of mine, I, I swim on a master's team and, and um, uh, one, one, of a, one of my friends swam for, for Stanford and she's, she's, uh, she's a coach now in the area. And we were talking about, you know, the vaccines rolling out and it's the, the, start, the days are getting longer and there's sunshine. And she said, we're getting there, Rob. And I thought to myself, yeah. We're getting there a year, you know, a year later, we're getting there. That's, yeah. that's kind of a great little microcosm of my mindset right now. We're getting there. Where do you swim? I swim at, I swim with the master's team at Sandpoint Country Club. And then, oh, um, I, I, yeah. And then, and then, and then I swim in the, uh, swim across America, open water, um, swim what? event every year. Um, and, and we do some open water swimming in Lake Washington too. You're, so. you're hardcore. You're a whole nother level. Like, <laughs> And so we talked about like why, why Ikata, but what about, um, I guess, what attributes are you looking for as far as someone who makes a great culture ad for Ikata? We, we look for people with intellectual curiosity because, you know, uh, tech changes so fast. Our business has changed so much since I started there in 2013 to where we are today. And People that are intellectually curious, um, number one, they 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 make their they, they bring a point of view. They they think about stuff. They don't just sort of do what you tell them all the time. Sometimes it drives me berserk, but most of the time, you know, they're they're mm -hmm. they're trying to think hard about hey, is there a different way we could be doing this better? And that's what we want. Yeah. Um, and so um, intellectual curiosity is an important one. They, they've got to have a level of aptitude for a technical product. It's quite a technical product that we sell. Yes, and, it is. Um, data is hard for, for a lot of people to grasp and, and an API is very intangible relative to I've sold, you know, basically, you know, something on a screen before where you can actually see yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so, so th those are pieces of it. And then, you know, we, 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 we want people that are 
motivated to do right by the customer and 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 and, and that fuels them you know to the, the point of this it, this podcast and um um and and you, you can figure that out pretty quickly with most people um yeah. what, what they're driven by and what motivates them and then our, our one of our operating imperatives is embrace the grind and that is more it's not like we grind every day it's more like everything that's worth doing is hard and takes time and that's okay and, and yeah. it's okay and so if you just embrace that and say it's hard and it's going to take time but we're going to get there we're getting there you know back yeah. to my back to Susan uh we're, we're getting there um you know that's that's what I believe and that's what the team believes in so we we work yeah. along every day and we try and do a little better every day one percent better every day that's great and so what are your big picture plans or goals for the company you know three five years from now well, we're, we're, we're really focused today at, at 200 people and, you know, about uh, 75 million in revenue run rate to be a $200 million, 600 person business, um, even more globally distributed than we are today um, yeah. in about three years time. And we've got that, we got a pretty good plan to get there. Uh, we got a lot of execution between now and then. Um, but, you know, unfortunately for the world, um, online fraud and cyber theft is, is, growing and uh massively massively right um, i mean it's like a huge sponsored it's it's very low risk i mean you can sit behind a server firm in russia and there's no risk the fbi is ever going to break down your door or whatever the way i say it is you know your worst week you can work a lot of long hours and drink a lot of coffee and not break in somewhere that's your worst week you know but and then at times you're gonna you know figure out that you know like my my id and my identity and 86 other 86,000 other Washingtonians were stolen for the from the employment security department right yeah. and all that money got funneled over to some Nigerian fraud ring um, and it didn't go to the people that needed it for unemployment and um, so that's what's going on today uh, in fraud it is a global market I, I really look at it like the financial market except it's an illegal instead of a legal market but you know the financial markets, focus on arbitrage opportunities where you, there's high reward for, for less risk. The risk reward trade-off is enough that you can make a lot of money fast. And fraud right now is just probing out there anywhere in the world where there's a weak point, where there's an arbitrage opportunity to make a lot of money fast. Um, and then, you know, the, the screws get tightened down, the security gets tightened down and they move to the next weak point. And it is a global market. And so, we're trying to support our customers globally to, 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 to defend against that. Yeah. Well, you're doing it. And I'm sure that they're all super grateful because imagine like, what else are you going to do? You have to partner with a company like yours. We all do. I wish there was something, I mean, we're not taking, we're not selling products necessarily. We're not e-commerce, but I always get scared of that constantly of getting, yep. um, Hacked of, into of, of and, getting yeah. hacked into. I'm mm -hmm. like, that's super scary. Okay. Yeah. So you're doing your swimming, you're running your company, you've got your three kids, you've got your dog, your dog Indigo, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Are you proud of me? I did my research. You really did your research. Amazing. Yes. So how do you set yourself up for, you know, a balanced life, a good week, kind of a week where you look back and go, I, I feel like I'm kind of on my, I like to say like on my feet, not on my toes and not on my heels. Like yeah. Just, that's, just a good, planted. that's a good way to say it. Uh, I try and take a little quiet time in the morning. Um, I really like walking the dog in the morning and just breathing in the air, uh, saying a prayer, um, just, you know, being out and, 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 um, kind of happy with the day, you know, so, so that whether it's raining or shining, I try and go for a walk in the morning. It's not a long walk, but it's 20 minutes or something to get centered a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, boy, I do my best to, um, um, you know, make sure I'm there time-wise for when, when my kids want me to be there, you know, uh, kids, as they get older, they don't need as much of your time, but you got to be available for them when they're ready. Cause they're not ready very often. And so exactly. I sort of put so stuff true. away if they want to do something as silly as watch a TV show with me or my daughter's wanting to drive right now. So when she says she wants to drive, we're driving. Like I'm not, yeah. there's nothing that's going to get in the way of that. Um, to try and do a little bit of that. Um, my wife and I do our best to get away once or twice a year. Um, and, um, you know, just enjoy the small things. Uh, I, yeah. I, I'm, I, I, I do my best to take uh, joy out of, uh, out of small things and not big things. And so that's why yeah. my, the book name was enjoy the journey. Yeah. I like it. Well, as we get older and I'm hitting 50 this year, so I get it. We're actually very close <laughs> in age. It, it's true that you do start to appreciate the little things more and try to remind yourself uh, you have so much more perspective. You're like, eh, don't, right. sweat, don't sweat the small stuff. So what is your like ultimate fuel? My ultimate fuel. Um, yeah. You know, my ultimate fuel at this point is um, uh, teaching other people a little bit of what I've learned. And uh, today I do that at work. Um, I try to do that a little bit with my kids, but uh, frankly, they, they don't have a lot of time for getting wisdom from their, their dad. Uh, um, but uh, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of energy out of the the people I work with, the team I work with growing their careers. Um, I've, I've, I've raised, a you know, I've, I've promoted a lot of them from within. Um, I've got a really motivated team, uh, very talented. Um, and I've taught them a lot, I think. And yeah, whether it's here or, or, or wherever else over, you know, the coming, you know, hopefully it'll be around a little bit longer. Uh, you know, the, I'll, I'll be trying to do that somewhere, I guess is what I would say. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.